I want you to turn to two passages, Psalms 84 and Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read one verse in the 84th Psalm, that's verse 11, and bring out one part of that verse as a thought for our message today. Psalms 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, if you're a preacher here today, you've got a couple of messages in that one verse there. But none would be greater than the part I want to bring out of that, and that's grace. It said that the Lord will give grace and glory. That's what he can do. And you know what? Nobody else can. The source of grace is God. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. You cannot achieve. You cannot arrive at a place where God is compelled to give it. Historic Christianity, that is Christianity as we have known it in history in our lives, is filled with the intentions of a lot of good men and women to do something good and noble. The idea of going out, let's do this or let's do this. And there's a lot of effort and lifelong pursuits have been put into noble ideas. But the only thing that really will count in the end is when God gives grace that gives direction. When man does things his way, as well-intentioned as he is, you might find it was dead works. And we don't like to hear that because we know so much of it. But when it comes to God, everything comes from his grace. Everything. Anything else is not of God. Didn't some men say once to Jesus, but Lord, we've done this and we've done that and we've done this. And remember what Jesus said? I never knew you. But Lord, look at all the people we preached to and talked to, Lord, and all the sermons that we preached. And he said to some, I never knew you. And we think, how could that be? It's just like in that book of Job. That's not fair. We're trying to do something really, really good, and at least you ought to enable us to do it better. We're going to think of something good to do. Now add grace to it. But it doesn't work like that, and we don't like the idea that it doesn't. One of the things I was sharing a while ago in the book of Job, when God finally confronted Job, you know what he said to him? He said, who is this that speaks words without knowledge? Or you don't even know what you're talking about. You got the right words, and you're putting words together, and you're making your point, but you really don't know what you're talking about. So it is for all of us as Christians to be willing to reduce ourselves down from everything we thought we were and just come to him as what we were. We were just sinners saved by grace. There was not a righteous one amongst us. None of us were good enough to be saved. None of us could save ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God who is rich 
in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, has quickened us together. Do you realize that when God saved you, you were dead? You believe that, don't you? That we were dead. That is, we were unable to give any kind of life. I will go so far as to say we were so dead in our sins that there was not a spark of goodness in any of us. There was not some divine moment in which we were able, apart from God, to choose God and be saved. I was not able to do that. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Everything good initiates with God and flows from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from heaven. Man can manufacture nothing. Again, we may not like that, but this is a reducer message. This is to bring us all down to the place where God can now begin to fill us with his purpose, his will, his direction, his goal, and his plan. Because that's what grace, that's what the grace of God does. God gives grace or God bestows grace in order to accomplish his will and his plan on this earth. That's what grace does. We haven't deserved it. We were never good enough, sweet enough, kind enough. Our mothers thought we were. But we were never good enough for anything of God. The whole world, the Bible says, lies in darkness. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us. Our best day was a bad day. And the only way anything has ever changed or could change in our life is when God confronts you speaks to you, however you want to define it, when God introduces himself to you. That act of introduction we call grace because it is favor. The word grace means favor, the word charis. And God shows favor to you in order to open your eyes to do whatever he wants to do in your life. In fact, he goes on to say, after you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he says he's the one that quickens you. Life can only come from God. God gave life. And he said in verse 5, by grace are you saved. And then he said in verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then he said in verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ unto good works. At no time in the Bible does God ever compliment our best efforts. Everything in us that we feel inspired to do that God has not inspired, as noble as it is, is not what God wants. Because you see, if it is, then grace is a compliment to human effort. And it doesn't work like that. Grace is totally with God and from God. Bestowed by God upon whomsoever he will. All men were dead. He quickened some of them. Why doesn't he quicken all of them? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that God does things according to his plan and his purpose. I want to title the message today, God and his grace from start to finish. Because if it starts and it's of God, it was grace that started. And when it finishes, it'll be finished because God stayed with it. That's the only way it works.
And that's the only way I know of that it works. But he said again in verse 4 and 5, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were unable to help ourselves. We could go to church, sing hymns. We could play the Lord's Prayer and all of those things. We could have feelings and emotions. We could feel bad about what we did last night, but we couldn't change. We could feel better about ourselves and try to imagine ourselves as being more good than bad so that if death came, we're surely not bad enough to go to hell. Because of human effort, this is how we see things. And yet you'll find that when it comes to grace, it's not like that at all. Why would God quicken some and not everybody? Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 21. He says, For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom he wills. Let me tell you something. If you in this room have been quickened, made alive unto God, you're glad about it. You even find yourself whispering or saying, Amen. If you're not in this room this morning and you talk about the grace of God, it's very boring. Very indifferent. I don't need to hear that. I don't want to hear all that. There were many times in my life I cared nothing about going to church because, to tell you the truth, I didn't want to hear all that. It didn't make much sense to me anyway. I mean, the people that I went to church with were, you know, I pumped gas at the gas station. They all bought gas down at the Gulf station where I worked, and I, they were no better than I was. And we're all sitting in the, in the hour of power in the Holy Palace, and then nothing happens. And I thought, well, there's nothing to it. But it's something that good people ought to do. Maybe in the end we'll be more good than we were bad. That's man's efforts at being saved. And yet he's dead in the beginning. He's dead in the end. He can't save himself. He can't sing enough hymns. He can't give enough money. He can't feel bad enough about himself to be saved. He can only happen when God in his marvelous pursuit of lost man, comes up to you in a very definite and defined way. And godly sorrow comes as you begin to realize what he knows, that you're a lost man, you're a criminal before God. And God has come this day to not only tell you that, but to offer you by his mercy through his grace, offer you salvation. To make you feel very bad about the one you've rejected your whole life, Jesus. And when he changes you, he quickens you. He begins something on the inside of you. Look at verse 7. The exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Toward you. Why not everybody? I mean, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It hasn't affected all men. But it has come. The world will know who Jesus is. Amen? The death of Christ was sufficient to save everybody in the world, but it'll be effective only for a few. Because as I said, there's a lot of people that don't care anything about this. It's not in their heart. They hope they don't go to hell. They have a philosophy and an idea and opinion about life and God and the world, and they hope they're convinced themselves they're more good than bad. But they're lost. They can't make it, and they won't make it. The only way they can make it is if they are quickened by the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith. 
And that, not of yourself. You can't even choose one day to believe. You don't even have the power to one day as a sinner to choose to believe in God. You can't even do that. Only God can give you the reality of that and the faith that comes with it. It comes from God. Do you realize that all of us in here this morning that are saved, we owe everything to him? Jesus paid it all, we used to sing, all to him I owe. Everything about me that deserved his fair judgment, he has wiped it clean so that I no longer have to stand accused. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Or as is written in the book of Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth. That's a revelation that comes to your heart that inspires you to want to learn more about who it was that saved you. How can I know you, Lord? How are your people going to know you and, and know what you want them to do, not dream up, come together? He said, I'm going to put you together, and I'm going to put in the church ministry gifts, and these gifts are going to be anointed in a special way. That's grace. To bring a message to you that you, in this age right now, that you need to hear something that you need to think about because this is what God is doing. And you can't hear it if you're not here. And so that's, to me, that's what he's doing. That's how he's working on this earth. Turn to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Concerning this grace, I'm becoming a graceite. I'm going to indulge myself in graceism. I want to learn about how gracious God is and how wonderful and how amazing grace is. I'm not talking about cheap grace. Cheap grace is when man designs things to do and it says, now God help me do it. And God's grace came and helped me do this. I would rather think it's the other way around. God shows a man what to do one day at a time. It might just be sweeping the floors, painting the walls, helping somebody this, giving to that. You start little things. And then when you respond to that, then grace is added to grace and more comes. Until finally you're living in the world and the realm of grace that God puts you in. Everything is inspired. You may not be approved by a lot of people or applauded by a lot of people because a whole lot of what God is doing, people can't see. Overcoming. Overcoming is a wonderful response to God's grace. Overcoming means you're not giving up and not quitting because things are tough and things are hard. You're hanging in there because what else do you have? And the world thinks you're crazy for doing it because they're totally blind what you're talking about. You talk about trials to the Christian world, they think you got a court date. Because the trial of faith, what's faith? Faith is the name of our building. We're the Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian faith. No, faith is a way of life that God requires. A what? Yeah, the only way you can please God is by faith. They would have to say, if they're honest, what are you talking about? I've been sitting in church for 50 years. I've never heard that. Probably true. Me neither. 
I wasn't in 50 years. Faith is how you relate to God. You don't get to see him. You don't hear him. You have to believe. You not only have to believe that he is, you have to believe that he knows. He watches. He listens. Nothing is hidden from him. You could go nowhere in the created order than God isn't there. There's nowhere you can go that God isn't there, whether the lowest to the highest. God doesn't have to go anywhere to be there. He's always there because God is spirit. Marvelous and beyond comprehension and understanding. And yet all of that is formed into a human body. So that in Christ you see God. You think, you're over my head, well then be still. Be still and learn who he is. Be quiet and read about him. Listen to what the Bible says and ask God to give you a revelation of it. Let something deep call into deep and something get its roots down on the inside of you until Christianity is a way of life and not some traditional persuasion on this corner different from the one on that corner. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's where my title comes from, except for grace. From start to finish, it's all God. The weakest one in here, if God started you on this course, he will finish your course. You will be there at the end. God doesn't start anything that he does not finish. But not everybody that looks like they've started necessarily. You know, when I was a young man, I thought one of these days when I get old, I'll get saved. I'll just go forward in our church, a Christian church. I'll just go forward. The preacher will come down and say something and smile and nod his head. Next week, I'll get baptized in the little baptistry. Then I'll get to stand at the door and shake hands with everybody. Now, you know, I'll be too old to sin anymore, so I'll, I'll just get saved. I sincerely thought I could do that until I got saved, and I realized that man cannot save himself, or he cannot get saved when he wants to. God initiates the whole thing. And you think, God, what is man that you and all your mighty, why, why would you even acknowledge us? Look at us. I mean, we just run this way and run that way and we're full of this and, oh, Lord. And yet he comes down personally, begins a work in your life. Just as I am and waiting not, flying to the front to get rid of that blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. And in a very humble way, God just starts a quiet, wonderful, eternal work in a man's life. It happened to me on June, thank you, 1960. Thank you. I want everybody to know when I got saved. I got saved June 30th, 1968, at five minutes to 12 in the First Christian Church in Charlestown, Indiana, corner of Water and Harrison Street. It was so good they had to tear the building down, build a new one, then the church died. It did. They just sold it to the city and they made a community center out of it. Oh, 
Jesus, Jesus. But anyway, he said, he that began a good work in you will do what? Will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. One translation says, and I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So God starts it, has a plan, a plan that he will show you, a plan that he requires you to respond to. This is your part. We call it faithfulness. This is what he does. He says, now let me show you what we're doing. Don't come to church and play like everybody else. You come to hear what my instructions are. So he shows you something a little bit. And he said, this is what I want you to do. So you begin to respond to that. This is a lifelong work. He does this throughout a man's life or a woman's life. This is what grace does. Why did he have to save us? Who in here did he have to save? Nobody. Why did he save anybody? It's his good pleasure. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. In this verse, he said two things. He said, he that has started a good work will finish it. And only God could start it. Only God can finish it. Because when God no longer is involved in it, we cannot finish it. We can be very religious. Don't get me wrong. We can be very religious. We can be very methodical. We can approve of the work that we voted on to do. But the only thing that's going to work out in the end until God says, well done, is the work that he started. And he's the only one that can finish it because that's what grace does. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm headed for another verse today that we're going to preach on, but I want you to follow me this far. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. Talking about grace. Verse 8. Who also shall confirm you how far? Who also shall confirm. The word confirm means to make true or fulfill. Does that mean we need to be made true? Does that mean that there was a fulfilling work that needed to take place? It wasn't just there. It had to happen. We call that word confirm. He said, he, God, who alone can, nobody else can, and you can, he will confirm you all the way through to the end so that in the end, what does he find at the end of that verse? So when he gets to the end, what does he find in us? That we are what? blameless. Is this what grace brings us all to? A blameless life? I'd say so. I would like to think that's true. And it is true. He shall confirm you and he shall make you blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the word blameless means? It means unaccusable. It means without any legal charge against you. Is it possible, let me ask you, is it possible for a man to live in this world as a Christian and at the end of his life be blameless? Ah. Is it possible for a bunch of people to do that together? Is it even possible for a church well, look at the mixture that's in this room. 
and not a handful of you are from this town. Everybody else came here from somewhere else. The whole bunch of you. Is it possible that God, by grace, could do a work in all of us that we were all alike, think alike, believe alike, walking alike, have the same aspirations, and clean alike? Without, let me see, let me see, what do you say in Ephesians 5 about the church in the last day? Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I'll tell you this, there's nobody in this room as smart as you are, as pretty as you are, as tough as you are, are able to live and reach that goal. The only hope any of us have for arriving at that is by the grace of God. Because grace is what God does, it's what God shows, it's what God gives us to pursue it with. That's the only way we can do it. Otherwise, we're just religious people having a little church moment this week, a little 22-minute sermon, and letting everybody go home feel good about themselves. But I like to think there's more to all of this than that. I like to think that what he said, that he will not only confirm you, he will make it possible and fulfill you, but he will keep doing it all your life until in the end, in spite of all your crying, your tears, and your complaining, at the end, you'll be blameless. Not even God, not even God will look at you and find something that needs to be fixed. I don't know about that. Now, well, okay. Jude. Jude chapter 1. <laughs> Look at the 24th verse of Jude. That's in your Bible too, isn't it? Folks, this is the power of God. This is what grace can do and what it does. Now unto him who is able. Does it say something like that? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Look how many people are falling. They're falling all the time. They fall away. The last days will be marked by falling away. And departure. And giving up and quitting. And changing courses. And redefining Christianity. It's going to be marked by that. In the church, error, deception. But he said he is able, God personally with you is able to keep you from being like that. Put it this way, God is able to make you different because he has enough of whatever it takes, the creator of all the world. We're talking about the creator God has the power and ability. Once he's got his loving and careful hands on your life, he is able to mold you and make you like a potter in the clay into whatever he wants. And if he spends a lot of time spinning you on the wheel and molding you and flipping on your head and whopping you on the backside, whom he loves, he chastens. Because he gets done with you, he's going to have something that's going to be a glorious thing in the Lord. A vase without spot, wrinkle, and no need for further improvement. Does your Bible say in Jude, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you how? Where? Present you where? The throne of his grace? 
You're going to come before him? Is a great judge of all the earth who is fair and honest and righteous in all of his judgment and passes just sentences on all the people that don't want to live his way? Is he fair? Yes. And when you come before him and he made you live this way, cause me to hear. Cause me. You mean you're going to cause us to do it? Yeah. He said, I will put my spirit in you in Ezekiel 11, and I'll put my heart in you. And he said, I will cause you to walk in all my statutes. You're going to live this way because he that began. What did he say? He that started a good work will what? Finish it. Is he able to do that? With me? See, you can't even answer that. I can't either. But yes, I can. Yes, he will. All of us chase cars. The whole bunch of us were car chasers. That's right. You know what a car chaser is, don't you? It's a dog. All that. Colossians 1. Find Colossians. See, are we going to be turning in our Bibles all morning? You're not going to turn in your Bible once, but you might open it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22. Well, verse 21, And you who were sometimes alienated and cut off and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has God, by grace, reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to what? To present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. That word again is without any legal challenge against you. He is able to do that with the worst one of you in this room. The lowest one, if you think you were. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. Paul said, I am less than the least of all the saints. I am not worthy of any good thing that God has. Nobody is. I think the sum total of all of this is that we humble ourselves into one great characteristic that must be present for a man to receive the goodness of God is humility. He can never stand upright and say, well, I deserve it. Look what I'm doing. He has to bow his head as Job did and said, I've heard of you. I know who you are now. I, I loathe myself. You speak and I'll shut up and listen. You're God. I have nothing more to say. And there's something about when God humbles us, we'll humble ourselves in the mighty hand of God. And, and when the more we begin to respond that way to see that he is greater and I am less, as John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. The more that kind of reality comes into our life, the more I think we covet hearing words that bring us forward, words that motivate us, words that inspire us. I think that's the way it ought to be, and I think that's what God would want us to have. But the word unblameable in Colossians 1.22 is our word for spotless. It's our word spotless, unblameable. Think of it. You, I don't know, I can't pick out one of you unless I made up a bunch of stuff, and then you'd be embarrassed. I could pick on Thomas, he wouldn't care. But see, he was out all night a month ago drinking and doing drugs, drunk, and down the red light district of some place, and he was terrible. But one morning after all that, he woke up, listened to the radio, and he got saved. 
Could God do that? That ain't the way it worked, is it? <laughs> but he could do all of that. The worst one of us, he could do it. And not only that, but he could put us on our face, humble us before him to where we won't even open our mouth. It's like the publican. The Pharisee said, I thank you, Lord, of all the things I've done and how much I know and how much I practice all the things I know. I am deep in the Lord. Remember what the publican said? The Bible said he could not so much as lift up his eyes. He had nothing to say but to God but one thing. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There was that divine moment in that man's life when he recognized what he really was before God. And now he can be saved. Because he's offered here the opportunity to repent of his sins. Your sins made you a monster. Look, God is willing to remove all of them. Whew. Just remember that weak, indifferent kind of person you are that brought all of this into your life. And don't you ever think more highly of yourself than you ought to. You counted a blessing and a privilege just to go to church. You quit making excuses and quit complaining and quit crying about how long and how far. You just be glad that you can. That God has chosen you out of the mire of all the distressed humanity and brought you to him so that he can begin to change your life. Because God has given you grace. He loves you. And the work that he started, he's going to complete it. Maybe that's why we get thankful. Maybe that's why holiness does operate in some people. Because it evidences the work of God in your life. God is working in me. The things I used to do, I no longer do. The places I used to go, I no longer go. I am keenly aware that that was not a place where God was. No. God has brought me to a place where he is. I know the devil hates all of this, but I can overcome. You see, God, the Bible says, is at work in you. He chose you. You boys will all understand this as you grow older. He brought you out of darkness, and he put himself inside of you. Can that be so? You're talking about God as spirit coming into you. Is that possible for a spirit to come into man? Obviously so. The devil entered into Judas, entered into him. Jesus cast devils out of people. They were spirits. Sometimes many spirits. God makes his habitation in a human life, a rotten human life. God cleans up the place he's going to dwell. We call it the heart. He gives you a new heart. He's got this brand new room in, in your life. Now you got a dirty mind. You got a filthy mind. He doesn't change all of that at once. He comes in here to give inspiration to you. That's grace. And that inspiration he gives to you challenges all your old responses that's in your mind. And all of that stuff, he begins to say, all of that's wrong. That motivated your whole life and brought sin. Everything is wrong. You got to change. Your mind has to be renewed now so that you can prove what the will of your father is because that's what grace always breaks, the will of God. 
And when grace is given, you can be sure that God has given direction to his people. Because what God wants from us is a perfect man. We can't accept that. We allow ourselves to live below that because we can't imagine that ever happened because we don't think grace is that big. That God is going to take the likes of us and make us perfect without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing to make us blameless, to keep us from falling, me, the way I've lived, all the way I've watched people live. And we sort of kick that word out that he's going to make you perfect. You'll find that God's work in you is not only to make you perfect, but to cause you to believe. John 6, 29. And this is the will of God. He said that you might believe. That's all he said. This is the will of God that you might believe. Because what can God do in a person's life who is unwilling to believe? If you don't believe, nothing's going to happen. You know that. For anything to happen, you've got to believe. You're not just some passive individual standing here and God just puts you in his will and there you are. He shows you things to believe. This is how we live. We live by our faith. Our faith is embracing what he says. It comes by hearing. And he shows us things. Not only does he show it, but he reveals the meaning of it. And that's this big part. And we see it. And then our response He calls it faith. That's the only way we can please him. James chapter 1, if a man does not respond to God by faith, the Bible says, let not him or her believe that they shall receive anything from God. James 1.8. That's a loaded verse of scripture. But instead of us trying to get around that, it just humbles. It humbles some of us and it causes fear, trembling. As far as I know, fear and trembling is still an okay part of the Christian life. I didn't go to church this morning to be afraid and tremble. Might not be a bad thing, especially if you're living bad and God has to judge the way you're living to get you corrected was a good thing. Amen? I mean, that's just the way it works. That's just, that's what he said. Now, let's go to our text today, 1 Peter chapter 5. Now that we've got it introduced, 1 Peter chapter 5. And this marvelous grace of God. And what he does from start to finish. All these verses here are familiar with all of you. And it begins with verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. I've been talking about that for 40 minutes. The God of all grace who has done that says this. After you have suffered a while. Does it say that? After you have suffered a while, he will do four things that only he can do, only he can start, and only he can finish. But he will do those things because they are vital and necessary at the end of our life. They are necessary. Now notice Let me just give five minutes to this. After you have suffered a while, if there's one message that is for sale that people won't buy, it's that one. Suffering. 
The Bible says all that live godly in Christ shall suffer. Somebody's going to be against it. Somebody's going to find fault with what you're doing. They're going to oppose it. Usually religious people. They think you're crazy. They think you're weird and off or you're a cult. You're some deviation from the truth. But suffering, suffering is a vital part of the Christian life. Suffering, I believe, when you go through a trial of your faith, you suffer. You say you believe in something. We mentioned Job the other night. When you say you believe something, you really don't know if you believe it or not. Anybody can say, I believe God. The devil said that in James 2. But when you say you're believing God for something in your life, how do you know you are? You said you were, yes. But how do you know you're really believing? How do you know that's something in your heart that will never be let go? Well, you'll find out. And you need to find out. See, God knows if you have faith. Wouldn't he know? He knows the end from the beginning. I don't think the devil knows. If he knew you were going to win, he would never test you. And you certainly don't know. You've never been tested. You said you're an honest man. You said you're an honest man. You're at the restaurant two weeks ago. After you ordered, there's a $20 bill laying at your feet. What a day I'm having. Then your heart says, now that's not yours, is it? I found it. But it's not yours, is it? Somebody dropped it, didn't they? I don't know. Uh, Yes. So you pick it up. Now... Is this a test? Say a little, a poquito, a little test, just a little test. Will you keep that where you, you would know who's eating and here's anybody lost this money? Well, they all did. <laughs> all of them did. Anybody lose a $20 bill? I did, I did, I did. Well, it cost you $500 to get out of there and give them all a $20 bill. So what do you do with it? Well, I know it's not mine. I don't deserve it. I can't keep it. didn't come out of my pocket. It's not my loss. And it's certainly not my gain. So I give it to the lady behind the counter. I said, somebody dropped us here, and I don't know who, but she looked at it and like, are you serious? She didn't say anything. She just said, okay. And she laid it there by the cash register. I guess somebody came up and gave them their Social Security number and told them what the number was on the $20 bill. They could have it. None of us knows the the, the nature of our character. We've been in here for many years. You don't know how deep or how committed you are to the Lord until you're put to the test. There are various kinds of testing, James 1 said. Count it all joy when you encounter divers' trials, different kinds of testings. Maybe a money test, maybe a physical test. Maybe a test of honesty, decency, or courage. A test. You said you were. You said you would be. You said, I'll go through precious Jesus. I'll go through. Now you're getting persecuted and everybody's hammering on you. What are you going to do? And the story of the sower and the seed, two of them quit and walked away. Couldn't handle the pressure. Well, the pressure is the suffering part. When you're under pressure, when you're under the gun, when things are against you and you're going through it, you could get out of it. All you have to do is quit. You don't have to go through all that pain and anguish and suffering. Just do something else. Get out of it. Withdraw. Draw back. Everybody would be glad if you would. 
But no, you're why well, you got to stay with it and hang in there. You said you believe God, blah, 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 and you look like a fool. But you're proving yourself. And you're suffering while you're doing it because some nights are long. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your human body. Money. Maybe it's a lot of things. What do you believe? This is the way God leads us. God says, my word is full of promises, benefits. You believe them? Let me show you one. He shows it to you. There's a revelation. Trust me for that, okay? And then the devil said, he won't trust you. She won't trust you. They're so weak. And God is faithful who would not allow us to what? Be tempted beyond that which we are able. He will provide a way of escape so that you can bear it. Because God's desire is for something that he's teaching and training and developing in us to come forth out of this. The great refiner of silver is going to take the third part through the fire. He's going to refine us as silver is refined and as gold is refined in the furnace of affliction. All because you believe something and you will not give it up and you're going to suffer because of that. And your family thinks you're crazy. The world thinks you're crazy. Nobody's ever taught it, it seems. And for you to do that when you don't know anybody else that's ever done that, it's like some weird religious group. Yet all you're doing is, Lord, you showed me what you said. I believe what you said. I'm going to act like what you said is true. I got my hands on the plow. And you suffer. And the Bible says, all that live godly shall suffer. Now, Peter, and here he says, after you've suffered a while, you're going to live by faith or you're not going to live. You're going to hold fast to God or you're not going to hold fast. You're going to believe what God says or you're not going to believe at all. And when you do say you believe something, chances are to some dimension, some degree, whether deep or just a momentary found $20 bill type thing, you're going to prove yourself. You're going to prove yourself. You might be driving down the highway and it says 70 and you said, I'm going 80 to the sign. Well, that's where we are. We just located ourselves, didn't we? <laughs> Why did I say all that? We just located ourselves. God shows us that. Wouldn't he show you that? This is who he's dealing with. And he says, after you have suffered a while, God will perfect you. Quickly, look at 1 Peter 2. And put your finger there because we're, we're going to come back to this. 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 19, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongly. Have you ever heard of a Christian being put in prison for his or her beliefs? There's a verse of scripture. Would you continue walking with the Lord if you had to spend 15 years of the best age you'll ever be? in your 20s and 30s, locked up in a nasty prison? Would you quit if all they asked you to do was recant? Say, I don't believe in God, and we'll let you out of here. Would you do it? Prison's pretty bad, long, no food, ugly, mean people. All you have to do is say something. It's a test. Well, this is thankworthy. If a man 
for conscience toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. In chapter 3, verse 10. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Oh, Lord. And his lips, that they speak no guile. Let him avoid evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But if you suffer for the right things, if you suffer for righteousness' sakes, happy are you. And don't be afraid of their trouble, neither be sorrowful. The Bible says in a number of ways and different ways that we will suffer and pay a price for what you believe in this life. It's going to happen. And he begins in 1 Peter 5 in verse 10 by saying, but the God of all grace who has called you and so on and so forth. And then he says, church, after you've suffered a while, when you're coming down towards the end, you've been going through a life that's been adversity to you. The world lies in darkness. The whole world's going to hate you, Jesus said, and so forth. He said, after you've suffered a while, God, now look at verse 10, after he said suffered a while, Notice the next two words, are, those words are make you. Does it say that? Now that's what it says of God about us. God will make you. That goes back to Philippians 1, 6. He that started a work will finish it. After you have suffered a while, God will make you. What will he make us to be? Four things. We'll mention those and then we'll be done. Those four things, one, he said that he will make you perfect. Is that possible? There's not just two, but there's two primary words to me in, in my study for the word perfect. Two words that are translated perfect. They're translated other ways, but they're also translated as perfect. And one word that is translated perfect in Ephesians 4, which you're familiar of, the gifts, you know, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Remember that? For the perfecting of the saints. The word perfecting there is a word katartizo. I know that's impressive, but it's a word which simply means to put in order, to make an adjustment. In Galatians 6.10, it says, if you see a brother overtaken in a fault. It said, you who are spiritual, restore. That's our word for here in uh, 1 Peter 5.10, make you perfect, restore such a one. If a man is in a fault, he needs some adjustment, doesn't he? Well, that's what the word means. When the disciples and the apostles had been fishing all night long there by the seashore in Mark chapter 4, the Bible said, they were mending their nets. They were putting their nets back together because they hit rocks and tore through. The word mending is our word perfecting. It's a word that shows restoration and shows putting things back in order. And the fundamental meaning of the word is to reestablish or put something back in working order. When it comes to the church and the disorder and the disarray in so many people's lives that are brought together in a group. 
Can you imagine a ministry having to deal with that? If you can. Can you imagine the task of taking us who have grown up in different ways, this way, this philosophy, that way, and this up and down, and we all had our different directions and ideas and communities we grew up in and rich and poor and so forth. Can you imagine all of us coming together and God giving a ministry the requirement to put all this in order? He said over you, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, the word for deacon, serving each other. How can that be? Well, God can do that. There are some that want it to happen, and it will happen. But that's what our word, make you perfect, means, that God will put us back into right order. God will make us the way he wants us to be, and he will equip us as Christians to live on his terms. This is what perfecting means. Now notice, after you have suffered a while, God will perfect you. He'll make you fit together in a way that he has designed and a way that he has been leading you to all these years. He will bring you to this. You're not like this, but like this. Remember Jesus' prayer in John 17 and verse, I think, 20 said, till they all are one like we are one, that they all may be one in us. How's he going to do that? What kind of harmony and unity is that? Well, it's the will of God brought forth by the grace of God in those people that respond to him. There's wheat and there's tares in a church. And the wheat is going to do like this. It's going to happen. A second thing he said, not only is he going to make you perfect, but 1 Peter 5, 10, he said he will establish you. Or says establish the word established means to make stable, to set fast. You become as a person who's not likely to be moved off course. It means to render us immovable, strong. But the word strong is another word we'll come to. But he wants us to be stable. Alfred in his... Greek book of explaining what Greek words mean. He said this word means has to do with he shall ground you as on a foundation. He shall ground you as on a foundation. He shall so establish you in the way he is leading you that nothing shall shake you off course. Wouldn't it be good if the devil couldn't whip anybody in this room? Wouldn't it be nice if you were not for sale? Nobody could buy you. Wouldn't it be nice? Nobody could wag enough money in your face to buy you, to get you, and own you, and control. Wouldn't it be nice? I knew a preacher one time. He had some key members in his church moved. Uh, their, the company, IBM, moved them from somewhere to somewhere else. And, of course, they were part of his church and key members of it. See, to me, I'm thinking, that's not what God is doing. Life is not about money. It's not about your house. 
It's not about your job and how much money you've made and how much you own, how well you're doing. That's not what life is about because absolutely none of that is eternal. None of absolutely nothing is eternal to what I mentioned. The only thing that's eternal is you. You're going to live one way or the other. Once you were made, you're going to be made forever. Either in outer darkness or in the kingdom of heaven. One or the other. And isn't it good when God graciously picked you out of that mire of mess out there, that messy mire you were in, and brought you somewhere in this cathedral of last year, and and he put you in here, makes you listen to an hour and 13 minutes, 58 minutes, all because he wants to change your life. Isn't that good? How gracious is God to you? How gracious is God to us? How gracious is he? Well, more than I know, but he's going to establish me. He's going to make me so that nothing will be able to shake me off course. I would like to say, humbly as I can, as I look back over the last 40 plus years, there have been many events and things that come into my life that challenge what I believe and challenge what I'm doing. It wanted me to go another direction. I was even asked once to be a part of a, and I won't bore you with names here, but you would go, whoa. I was even asked once to be a part of another ministry. A man of means was a great friend of a somebody and was going to connect me with this somebody and get me a part of his system and I would go all over the world and be rich and famous I guess I remember telling him eating ice cream in the luau room in the Hilton Hotel in Honolulu Hawaii you'd be a lot of worse places I don't think so and you could see, what? Because even at that young and dumb age I was in then, I knew that that wasn't the direction of God. That was all about me being somebody that I would like to be and not necessarily anything what I believed that God had shown me to be. And I said, no. And essentially it came down, now I'm going to Shelbyville. Where? Where are you going to Shelbyville? What's that? Is that some corporation? No. It's a little spot in the road in Shelby County. Where's that at? It's just outside of Louisville or Louisville for the folks in the mountains and Louisville for the other people. But Louisville for us. I'm going to Shelbyville. Old timers call Shelbyville shovel. Like a shovel and Ville. Shovel. Call it whatever you want to, as long as you live there, amen. Fourth thing he said was God will strengthen us. He will strengthen us. He said in in Ephesians 3.16 that he would grant you, that means he's going to give of his own accord, that he would grant you to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now, folks, let me ask you this. 
Is it not true that a man's strength is not necessarily in his muscles and his physical strength? No man has the strength of a horse, and God calls the strength of a horse nothing when it comes down to what's going to save you. But you put the gospel in a man's heart, the reality of it, the living desire for it. You put that in a man's heart. You may kill him. You may cut his head off. You may throw him in a ditch somewhere, but you cannot take away from him what he's got. He is stronger than your axe, your gun, your bullet, your sword, your jail. He's stronger. And there's so many verses we couldn't possibly go through all of them. But the Bible teaches us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And back in Colossians a while ago, we were reading in chapter 22, chapter 21, he talks about us being strengthened with all might. That's what God is doing, making us strong so that we don't quit. Because the easiest thing for people to do is quit. That world out there that tried this once, didn't want, they quit. Because they're all weak. If you want to say it this way, it takes a man. It takes strength to walk the Christian life. And most people are too weak to go this way. They give up way too easy. They throw in the towel way too soon. All they need to do is see down the road where they're going and what's going to cost them, and they're out. That's why God had to pick you. You read 1 Corinthians 1, the base, the despised, and the foolish. God went down to the discount mall and got you. You were on sale. He went in there and nobody wanted you. They couldn't even put you on sale and somebody wants you. Sidewalk sale, they just kept going. And he picked you. And when it's over, the world's going to look at you and marvel at God because you're going to glorify him. He said you would. Because the end of that verse said that he will settle you. He will settle you. And the best picture I can tell you about of being settled means to be founded on a rock. Not going to be moved off course. It's twice he says it like this. Strength will make it three times in those four things. God's work in you is going to make you steadfast, immovable, always abounding. You're not for sale. They can't bribe you. They can't threaten you. They can't shake enough money in your face to turn away from the will of God. You can't do it. Money can't make you happy. Only God can make you happy. Amen. And when God gives you his happiness, which we call joy, it's like giving strength to you. Because you've got something you'll never give up because you know what you got. You know what you've got. And you hold on to it. They built a house on the rock. And the rains descended. The wind blew. And the floods came. And in the last days when multitudes are falling away, you won't. You won't. You know why? Because God took time while everybody else was running around looking for something easy. He gave you the hard way. You had to dig down and get on the rock. But when he put you there, you ain't never going anywhere else. He that started a good work in you is what? It's going to finish it. Amen. Bow your head with me. 
Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for grace. For the grace that brings mercy and goodness and faith and kindness and love and joy and cheer and meaning into our lives. I thank you this morning, Lord, on the behalf of all of us here for the wonderful work that you do in your people. You're remaking us. You're redoing us from what we were to what you want. And I ask, Lord, that you would find whoever, wherever, that you would bring them all unto yourself and do this wonderful work of righteousness in these last days. Those of us that are here this morning, I ask you in Jesus' name to keep doing a good work. Hold us fast, Lord. Make us strong. Make us to be settled and established and make us perfect. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.